0: And before we read um, from Matthew 5, I'd like to build on what was said last week. So we are studying the Sermon on the Mount. And I said that the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon about repentance, primarily. And it's about the kind of life that repentance brings with it. Um, What does it look like to be a disciple of Christ? What is it that He wants from us? Okay, Repentance leads us to a kind of life that Jesus blesses, but the world rejects. And that's what we talked about last week. Jesus blesses the poor in spirit. He blesses the meek. He blesses the merciful. And the world appreciates that sentiment, but it sees no real value in that kind of life. The world blesses the rich. The world blesses the famous and the powerful. And so repentance then is turning from our impulse to find happiness in what the world is offering us, what the world values, and instead turning to Jesus Christ and the life that he offers us in the kingdom of God. And so with that introduction, we turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. It will be on the screen. For you in English and Spanish. This is God's Word. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it. Under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Verses 10 through 12 together form a single beatitude. That is repeated twice by Jesus for emphasis. And then he goes on to explain it further in verses 13 through 16 by using two metaphors. And that's why I've separated it out from last week. So last week we looked at the first seven Beatitudes. We saved this one for today. But the previous Beatitude, Blessed are the Peacemakers, is actually an important connecting point in the Sermon on the Mount, because peacemaking may bring persecution. In fact, it often does. Because the efforts of Christians to live a kingdom life in the world, a world that rejects our king, that's going to make us targets, right? No servant is greater than his master. They persecuted Jesus. They persecuted His disciples, they will persecute us. Peacemaking is an attempt to reach people with the gospel and to walk beside them in repentance and faith as we also are living a life of repentance and faith. It's an attempt to build bridges between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. But maybe you've heard the expression, bridge people get walked on. So this idea of being a peacemaker has consequences. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So to some we smell like life and to others we smell like death. You ever had an animal die in your attic? or inside your walls it's not, a, uh, it's not a pleasant experience it's not a pleasant thought right? and you only know it's there because of the smell you can't see it, you can't hear it but the smell is bad enough that you know something's there and you will do anything to get rid of it right? you can't live with it, it's so bad if you've ever had that happen And I think what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the gospel is received in that way by most of the world according to the Bible. Most of the world experiences the message of Jesus in a negative way. Now some people are drawn towards Christ and his kingdom. But most people according to the scriptures receive the gospel and it's so offensive that they can't tolerate it. They must get rid of it. And that is why persecution exists. Jesus specifically reminds His disciples of the prophets of the Old Testament who were often persecuted for the message that they preached publicly. And if you know the stories, prophets were persecuted because... They were, all they were doing was saying things. They weren't doing anything, right? They were just speaking. And they were saying things that disrupted people's way of life. Their very presence was a criticism of the way that people were choosing to live. And that's why they were hated by most. The prophets were exposing all the ways in which people were living outside the boundaries that God had set for their lives. They were condemning people's love of money. They were condemning people's neglect of the poor. They were condemning people's broken sexual ethics. And lots of other things. And they were hated for it. And this is what Jesus is saying he wants for his disciples. That we be hated, essentially, for saying things that make people uncomfortable. We're being called to be this sort of a prophetic presence in the world. And Jesus uses two metaphors to further explain how that works. Okay, and the first is salt. Verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's a bit of a confusing illustration, and so I'm going to do a little bit of explanation because the salt that we buy today, if you go to Kroger, Walmart, and you buy a container of salt. That is much different from the salt that they had 2,000 years ago. Okay? Our salt is pure sodium chloride because we have refineries that make it like it is, but their salt was not pure at all. They didn't have refineries. And so the white dust that they called salt was actually only part sodium chloride, and it was easily affected by moisture. The salt could actually be washed out, and there would still be white powder because of all the other stuff that was there. And so what remained was really nothing but dirt. It looked like salt, but it didn't taste like salt. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And so with that explanation, it's actually pretty obvious what Jesus means here. He's saying that there is a possibility for a Christian to become no different from the world around them. This is the Christian who has no prophetic presence in the world because they're essentially... No different from the world. But that begs the question, well, what's been lost? What does it mean to lose our saltiness? And again, that also requires a little bit of explanation, right? If you or I want to preserve me for more than a few days, what do we do? We put it in the freezer. And then it lasts for months, right? But back then the only way to preserve meat was to actually cover it with salt. That's what they used salt for. That was actually the primary purpose of salt. It was to slow the decay of meat. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is that he wants his disciples to be different enough from the world that our prophetic presence in the world somehow helps to slow the decay of sin and death around us. So, when God's people are living a life like he described in the first part of chapter 5, this life of daily faith and repentance, and the fruit that's produced by that behavior, the character that Jesus outlines in the Beatitudes, when we're living that kind of life before other people, we will have a positive effect on the world around us, a preserving effect. In other words, and hear me especially if you're skeptical of all this, okay? Christianity is actually good for the world. Even if the world rejects the things that we believe.
1: And incidentally,
0: again, if you're skeptical, this is something I would encourage you to read about, especially in the last 20 years or so. Scientists are beginning to recognize this, okay? While more and more people are now describing themselves as atheists or agnostics or non-religious, science is actually telling us, specifically sociology and psychology, that in general, religious participation is actually really good for people's health and happiness. Jonathan Haidt um, is, is actually an atheist. He's also a social psychologist. Listen to what he wrote. He said, surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer lived, and more generous to charity and to each other than are secular people. Religious believers give more money than secular folk to secular charities, not just to churches, and to their neighbors. They give more of their time, too, and of their blood, literally. And if you were to do kind of a survey of history, not just in the United States, but across the world, even in places like India where Christianity has helped to take down some of the caste system that exists there, the influence of Christianity has led to many of the advancements that we take for granted in modern society. And we would expect that if Jesus is telling the truth, that we are the salt. We are helping to slow the decay of sin and death in a world that is literally running from God. But only if we're different. Only if we're different. I like the way uh, Dan Doriani makes this argument in his commentary. He says this, If the only visible difference between Christians and secular people is that we go to church on Sunday and give money away more regularly, why would anyone want to join us? If we divorce, alienate our children, tell lies, and make dirty deals like everyone else, why not play golf on Sunday and spend our money on exotic vacations, right? Why not spend it on our bucket list? And the truth is, in many of our churches... Christians today are not much different from the world, right? The salt is in grave danger of losing its saltiness. And it's not just us who suffer. The world will suffer as a result of that. Because a church that's no different from the world is worthless. But then there's another consideration. Notice that Jesus chose salt as the illustration and not sugar. Listen to what another writer says about this. He says, to look at some Christians, one would think that their ambition is to be the honeypot of the world. They sweeten and sugar the bitterness of life with an all-too-easy conception of a loving God. But Jesus, of course, did not say, you are the honey of the world. He said, you are the salt of the earth, and salt bites And the unadulterated message of the judgment and grace of God has always been a biting thing. Martin Luther agrees, saying that preaching the gospel is like rubbing salt into people's wounds. He writes that the real salt is the true exposition of Scripture which denounces the whole world and lets nothing stand but the simple faith in Christ. Now, in truth, Jesus is the honey. But He calls us to be the salt. And that is the first metaphor. The second that Jesus uses here is light. Verse 14. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is actually an easier metaphor for us to understand because light works the same way now as it did 2,000 years ago. And so we don't have any doubt really what Jesus means here. Christians who hide their light are Christians who are refusing to be in the world. Refusing to be visible. And so what Jesus is saying is that our God-given purpose is to remain in the world, letting our light shine before others. We must be visible. We must be seen. We must live our lives out in front of the world, not hidden in our homes and in our churches. We cannot move away from the world. We must move toward the world as Jesus moved toward us. But if you've been Christian for long, you know it's actually very tempting to retreat from the darkness, right? To isolate ourselves in fear. To only stay with Christians. To only stay where we're comfortable. But what I think Jesus is saying is that that would actually be selfish of us. And even faithless of us. Jesus is commanding us here. He's not politely asking. He is commanding us to shine our light before a watching world. Now, I want to be clear about what I think our light is, okay? The light that we carry is reflective. So if you think about it like this, we can't go outside and stare up at the sun without burning our eyes, right? But we can go out at night and stare at the moon. Why? Because the moon is not really a source of light. All the moon does is reflect the sun's light. This is why people might see our light and give glory to God, as Jesus said, and not to us. It's because the light's not actually coming from me. It's not coming from you. I am not so good and so wonderful that I'm producing light in and of myself. I am merely reflecting as one who has been made in God's image and remade in the image of Christ as a believer. I am only reflecting the light that God has given to me. I am a reflector. And so our good works are only a reflection of the character of God at work in us. And what does that light accomplish? What is the purpose of light? It reveals, it exposes. It clarifies. And so if you remember from last week, we said that's actually what repentance looks like, right? It it is God revealing the sin within us. He is exposing us. He is shining a light on our deficiency, on our need. He is giving us a more accurate self-perception. He is redefining the way we think about self in our relationship to Him. And when we see that, what God does is He leads us by faith and through repentance. We turn from our sin and towards Christ. And we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then what does Jesus do? He takes our focus off of ourselves and immediately shifts that focus towards other people, right? He makes us merciful, He strips away the selfish motives that we previously operated from and he makes us ambassadors of peace. And then he calls us to be salt and light. This is how Jesus describes our purpose. He wants us to have a prophetic presence in the world that he has put us in. To be in the world, but not of the world. You've heard that expression before. That's what he's talking about. We must be different, but we must also be visible. Those are the two uh, commands here. Be different, but also be visible. And if we do those two things, what he's also saying is that as a result of that, guess what? You will be persecuted or God will be praised. And it's probably both and. And. But according to Jesus, those are the two possible responses to Christians living out that kind of life before men. You will either be persecuted or God will be praised. And in either case, God will be glorified. But Christian, if you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you believe that jesus died if you believe he rose again if you believe that he did that for you and you profess that faith and you would call yourself a christian if neither of those things is happening in your life if you are neither being persecuted or god being glorified or being praised if neither of those things is happening then we are probably not really living as disciples of jesus We may not be living out our purpose as salt and light, right? Let me say that again. If if we face no persecution for the way we're choosing to live, if there is no reaction by the world, or if God is not being praised by others for the way that we're living, then something is wrong. We are either too much like the world around us, to where no one can tell the difference, or we have retreated and hidden ourselves from the world altogether. One of those things must be happening. And so what I want to end with is I want to end with the words of Jesus. This is His prayer to the Father just before His death. And speaking to the church, this is what Jesus said. This is John 17. He said, I've given them Your word, and the world has hated them, that they may also be sanctified in truth. And church, this is why we are still here. This is why you still exist. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're still breathing, this is why you're here. The rest of it is secondary. And I just want to... I'm supposed to end my sermon here, but I, I feel like I need to connect the dots a little bit more to the gospel okay so what's your motivation for this it's because we remember what it is that Jesus has done by incarnating on our behalf right that's what he's saying in this prayer right I came into the world I'm not of the world right he's not of this world Jesus was not sinful he is not sinful he lived a perfect life he died in our place he rose again And what he's calling us to is through him to have that kind of presence in the world that people take notice. And listen, as your pastor, this is, I promise, just as convicting to me as I hope it is for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for calling us to a higher purpose. Thank you for providing everything that we need. We recognize that um, without you, we have nothing to offer this world. The light that we have is not our own, it is provided to us through our merciful Savior. And Father, I want to pray specifically for um, anyone in this room that does not yet believe these things are true. I understand um, because You have said that Your message of truth is something that most will respond negatively to, but at the same time I pray that You would do for them the same thing that You did for me, that You would break through the stoniness and the hardness of heart, that You would soften you would give them a heart of flesh, that they would hear this and rejoice in it and not reject it. I pray for each of us that you would lead us to be people who seek to be different from the world, but not afraid to be in it, not in a not in a haughty way, not a judgmental or a prideful way, but in a humble, in a humble way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand.